hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Let's listen in to Stinchfield tonight, this week for a pandemic update. Every time I read more news about the China virus and the response to the China virus, I become more and more disheartened with my government. Take a look at this headline from the Epic Times. Doctors can prescribe ivermectin for COVID-19, says an FDA lawyer. Hey, you've got to be kidding me. You know why I say you got to be kidding me? Not because ivermectin doesn't work. It does. I've used it, and I had tremendous results with ivermectin when my doctors were told you weren't allowed to be prescribing this, but they did to me anyway. Thank God they did. Take a look at this tweet from the FDA uh, back in, oh, I don't even know what date it was, but it doesn't matter. Just read it. You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, you all stop it. That's why you shouldn't take ivermectin. Now, that's a tweet. Now, all of a sudden, they say you can. Do you see the problems here? So, Senator Ron Johnson responded to this news. Listen. You know the doctors I've been uh, dealing with and talking to for years now. Uh, they, they believe that probably hundreds of thousands of Americans lost their lives because they were denied really treatment. And they're denied it because the FDA sabotaged, for example, ivermectin. They said, come on, y'all, you're, you're not a cow, you're not a horse. You know, this, is, this is supposedly horse medicine. No, this is a Nobel Prize winning uh, medicine that, that could, could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. It did save many, many lives because people, you did have doctors with the courage to, uh, and the compassion to actually treat patients using it. As I said, I used it. I don't think it saved my life because I wasn't going to die from COVID because I'm in very good shape. And, uh, I wasn't really all that sick, but it did help me. And I think it would have helped a lot more people than it did if the FDA would have been honest, because I actually believe they lied about all this. They knew it could help and lied about it. Well, joining me now is the world-renowned cardiologist and epidemiologist, as well as the author of the book, Courage to Face COVID-19. Our good friend, Dr. Peter McCullough, is back with us. Dr. McCullough, I, I have to say, I mean, does it kind of make you laugh? I mean, I'm so mad, but... Boy, oh boy, really? Grant, lives were lost because of that FDA misinformation campaign. It was direct propaganda to scare Americans from using ivermectin and to frighten doctors. Uh, You know, ivermectin's been in the McCullough Protocol since 2020. It's, you know, it's part of a multi-drug regimen, very effective. We treated people well into their 90s, people on home oxygen, uh, using ivermectin plus about four to six drugs in combination, and we pulled them through. The FDA should have been encouraging our use of generic drugs to save lives. Instead, of, instead they were actually misleading the country, and now they've been brought into court by Doctors Tally Bowden, Merrick, and Apter, and the FDA is getting their clock cleaned. Dr. McCullough, you know, in California, they wanted to pull the licenses of doctors who were prescribing this. Anybody that goes against the government prescription, call it, uh, would have their license pulled. They're passing laws like this. How do you explain it now when the FDA says, oh, we were wrong? 
It's complete malfeasance. You know, they've decertified doctors in Canada, pulled their licenses, Australia, New Zealand, all over. So whatever's going on, Grant, it's a worldwide operation to suppress treatment, to intimidate doctors, and to railroad these vaccines on the population. You know, none of the countries have pulled it off the market. I was on the floor of the U.S. Senate in 2022. I said, take them off the market. They're not safe for human use. So I want to get to the vaccines in a minute because there's new news on on that as well, which is just unbelievable to me. Um, But I want to ask you on a personal note. You were so early on with with the ivermectin. Uh, My friend, Dr. Barkey out in California, he's the one that prescribed it to me early on. He He was there. How did you know that this was working in a legitimate treatment? How did you come to know about ivermectin? I was just following the literature, Grant, papers were pouring in. It was discovered that ivermectin blocks some of the effects of the spike protein, the dangerous part of the virus, plus it blocks nuclear entry of the virus into the human nucleus. Once we started seeing the clinical trials, and the most notable one is called the ICON study from Florida by Dr. Roster. He testified in the U.S. Senate in 2020 on this. It reduced mortality by 50% inpatients and outpatients. So we had a U.S. study published in the best journal, CHEST. There was no reason why doctors should have denied patients ivermectin. Let me play you a clip from uh, RFK Jr. You know, he's running for president as a, as a Republican. He's been outspoken uh, against the vaccines. Uh, this is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. There is a little-known federal law that says you cannot give an emergency use authorization to a vaccine. If there is a medica- any medication approved for any purpose that is shown effective against the target disease. So if Tony Fauci or anybody had admitted that hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin are effective against COVID, it would have been illegal for them to give the emergency use authorization. A $200 billion enterprise that would have collapsed. Maybe the most important words are the 200 billion enterprise. Maybe that's what this was all about. Is he right there, Dr. McCullough? He's partially right, but you know, bamlanivimab was already on the market as a monoclonal antibody to treat COVID. So, uh, you know, it's on the EUA market. Uh, the bottom line is the vaccines were to prevent COVID-19. Ivermectin was to be treated. Uh, the EUA mechanism shouldn't have been the reason. I think it was more nefarious than that, Grant. I think governments around the world wanted people to be scared and in fear that there was no treatment for this illness and the only thing they could do is wait in lockdown and and wait for a vaccine. Yeah, sadly, I think you're right. Now we have this vaccine. They're still pushing it. I asked you a very important question the, the other the other day when you were on. I think it was last week, maybe the week before. Uh, has this worked for anybody? Your, your answer was basically no. And now we are getting word that they want yearly COVID shots with a vaccine that just is not working. It's completely ineffective, Grant. You know, most people who've had COVID now are fully vaccinated. In fact, you know, most people can't think of anybody who's been vaccinated who hasn't had COVID. They've completely failed. And so to keep giving shots, even though everybody's had the illness, a paper by Klassen and colleagues from Stanford or Harvard, I'm sorry, showed that basically 97 percent of Americans have had COVID. The vaccines don't last even six months theoretically. So to give a once a year shot 
is a complete wasted effort. Wait, six months of theoretical benefit, six months, no protection on annual shots. It's not like any other annual shot. They should give it up and take it off the market. Last question for you, Dr. McCullough. Before COVID, five years ago, did you know that the FDA and the pharmaceutical companies were, I'm going to use the term corrupt, and in cahoots as they are, were you aware of just how closely connected they were? Yeah, I had some insight. You know, I had testified in the Congressional Oversight Panel for the FDA in 2007, and I'd worked closely at the FDA as a data safety monitoring expert. Uh, but over time, pharmaceutical companies basically uh, began paying most of the fees to the FDA. And what really tipped us off is that FDA commissioners, when they were done, Grant, they got sweetheart jobs with Vic, with uh, pharma, including FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb. He works for the board of Pfizer. And then his successor, Stephen Hahn, he works for the venture capital firm for Moderna. So these guys are corrupt in office because they're working for their next big pharmaceutical job. Again, uh, another segment that's two in a row of just how backwards and uh, how the system is set up to enrich the good old boys up in Washington, D.C. Dr. Peter McCullough, as always, it's such a great pleasure having you on. I appreciate you sparing some time with me for tonight. Thank you. We have a great show for you today. I have on uh, an exclusive interview with Christine Cotton and her assistant, Pierre. Now, Pierre uh, is anonymous on his last name to protect himself and his firm. They are French scientists. They've done a deep dive uh, with the links I provide in the show notes uh, on Pfizer fraud during the clinical trials, demonstrating clearly how Pfizer intentionally cut corners to try to make the vaccine look like it's, it works and to make it look like it's safe when indeed it's not. You have to hear what they have to say. This is a deep dive. And so uh, it's vitally important for you to understand these vaccines were never safe, never effective. And these French scientists can tell you why. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is McCullough Report. Cofix RX is Pavidone iodine nasal spray in a 1.25% solution and a spray bottle that actually actuates the Pavidone iodine into a gentle spray into the nose in order to kill nasal pharyngeal pathogens, the viruses that cause the common cold, paramyxoviruses, other coronaviruses, adenoviruses as an example, common bacteria including uh, pneumococcus, haemophilus, staphylococcus, uh, streptococcus, all those common organisms that cause sinusitis. Uh, Importantly, the uh, product is used with a spray pump up each nostril. Don't hold your head back, just in a neutral position. And there it can be used uh, about three times a day in a 24-hour period when anybody gets sick in the house. And Cofix RX is not far away. So go to cofixrx.com and in the promotional code, uh, put in out loud for a discount. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. 
For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. One of the biggest advances in nutraceuticals and supplements is healthy cell. And the healthy cell line is extensive. I typically focus on the microgel technology. Three major products here, Immune Super Boost, the Focus and Recall, and then the REM sleep supplement. Each one of these is complementary and they can uh, have a role, I think, in the health of your life each and every day. I know they do in my case. Many of you know, after COVID-19 twice, I spent almost the entire year in 2022 with the upper respiratory tract illness. Now, thankfully, and I've been diligent with the immune super boost in the morning, followed by focus and energy, and then in the evening time, the REM sleep supplement. The microgel technology works, and boy, does it work fast. So go to our website, America Out Loud Talk Radio, find the banner bar for Healthy Cell, click on it, and that'll take you to the site to get a discount on your purchase of all Healthy Cell products. So let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, your host on America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, and also Courageous Discourse. And boy, I have two colleagues from France, and they are courageous for sure. Christine Cotton and Pierre, who have done a deep dive into data analytics regarding the clinical trials, messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, but I'll have them introduce themselves quickly uh, so we can get on to some of the key data analysis. Christine, why don't you go first? Yeah, uh, thank you. Um, so I've been a biostatistician for 23 years. I had my own company during 22 years. It was a CRO, clinical research organization, specialized into the management of the data of the clinical trials and post-authorization studies. So um, I uh, was also a quality uh, assurer of my own company because we have many processes to follow uh, for pharmaceutical industry, what we call the good clinical practices. 
NPR. And I've written in, in, um, I wrote in January 2022 an expertise on the Pfizer vaccine regarding the good clinical practices. Okay, we'll get into that in just a minute. Go ahead, Pierre, go ahead and introduce yourself. And on my side, uh, I uh, started my career in uh, economic intelligence and forensic uh, legal expertise and uh, then moved to uh, statistical analytics on uh, sports data. Uh, mainly providing uh, data for bookmakers and uh, operating in uh, predicting the outcomes of uh, of games. And uh, I uh, had to care about the Pfizer documents more due to my uh, forensic background encouraged by uh, a friend of mine, Geoff Payne, in Australia. And uh, I started a bit later than Justin in uh, December 2022 and haven't stopped since. So, so you can see the, the talent that we have in this uh, program tonight. So we have regulatory, biostatistics, uh, pharmaceutical development, consulting expertise, and forensic investigative techniques with respect to data. Dr. Cotton, why don't we go ahead and get into the presentation? I know you want to show the audience uh, yeah. some data and actually give some context about how you got into this originally. Okay, because it's easier for people to understand when we have a document to share. So uh, what uh, are the source documents for our work, work? The publicly available documents at the beginning, the study protocol, the risk management plans, of course, the clinical study reports. So all these are the authorizations. So in December 2020, we have the, we had already the December 2020 clinical study report available on, on in the, onto the FDA website. We have also the data leaks, um, documents made public out of court procedures. And um, uh, the, the, our team, uh, I, I'm going to let uh, Pierre introduce the team. So to quickly pass, uh, Christine already introduced herself. We have Josh Getzko in Israel, who is a professor in sociology and criminology. Geoff Norman Payne, who is a doctor and a specialist in chemistry and biology. Jikilix is an anonymous whistleblower, a PhD, who brought us together. Brooke Jackson is a clinical trial researcher who was overviewing three of the trial sites uh, for the Ventavia group. Dr. Jayanti Kunadasan is an anesthetist in Australia who was uh, fired due to the mandates there. Uh, a concerned amyloidosis is another anonymous uh, investigator who works from Germany uh, and has extensive uh, clinical research experience. And myself, uh, as uh, I already introduced myself. So I, let me okay. explain to the audience that some of the collaborators work anonymously. And this is because censorship and reprisal has been so severe against anyone analyzing the data and bringing the truth. I just want the audience to understand that. Uh, it, it's uh, it's the reality of the world we live into, but Christine has boldly uh, you know, gone out here and put this presentation together. Christine, take it over. Yeah, uh, so uh, we have to remind people that for these vaccines, we have an accelerated development. Uh, uh, on the left, you have the classic development when the phase starts when the previous one is over. Uh, for the this vaccine, COVID vaccines, we have accelerated uh, phases with the start 
of uh, the of a phase without the uh, previous one finished. So you, we don't have uh, all the results each time we start a phase. So it's it's um, it may be very dangerous. So if we just look at the Pfizer clinical trial, we had um, uh, twenty two months, uh, twenty four months follow up planned, and each so the clinical study report was on the basis of interim analysis at maximum three months. So each each time they say it's safe and effective, it was based on results on patients only followed three months maximum. So it's safe on three months, effective on three months. But we are going to see that it was not so effective um, for some of them. So um, what we knew in December 2020, uh, the, where we have population excluded from the trial, of course, the pregnant and breastfeeding women, because they are uh, um, a protected population. Uh, we don't have any results on immunocompromised patients, on patients with comorbidities, such as pulmonary disease or diabetes or cardiovascular disorder, so it's a problem. <laughs> we don't have results on patients with autoimmune or inflammatory disorder. And we didn't know at the time, of course, the interaction with other vaccine because it was not studied. Transmission was not studied. Asymptomatic cases were not studied. And uh, what I've found into my uh, expertise is that this trial has, has many uh, statistical bias that um, um, false the uh, fifth uh, the the announced uh, don't have a PCR test for all participants and I'm not going to share this uh, in the detail because we have uh, uh, people can find my reports on my website. But so Christine, the, let me, let what me we just, know. Let me just stop you there though and, and ask Pierre a question. When you meant bias in the trials program, my question for Pierre is, is it intentional? From your forensics, was this intentional to try to make the vaccine look better than what it was? Or, or was it uh, an innocent scientific error? Without any doubt, yes. Uh, to, to, to precise a point, the protocol has been reviewed and uh, amended countless times. Uh, as the study was going on, and uh, several of those flows have been uh, were clear from the start. Others have been introduced uh, deliberately uh, as the trial was going on. Okay, Christine, take it away. Yeah. So, um, so uh, what we know is its result is uh, totally erroneous. We are sure of this. So efficacy on severe cases, we had no efficacy in, um, for adults, no for the adolescents, no for the children, and, and no for the babies. Because if you look at the result, it's written into the report, uh, no, no severe cases into the trial, so you can prove that your vaccine is better than the placebo because you, you have no case or not enough to have a statistical proof of any efficacy. So um, when we look at the uh, publication at six months, so the results at six months, here we can look at the uh, death 
tables. And uh, what uh, we know uh, with this is that there was no efficacy statistically proven uh, for the death to, due to COVID and no efficacy proven, of course, for overall mortality. And uh, on, since we have the database with Pierre, we have uh, computed the number of dead into the database that uh, should be the same that the one used to um, to do the to write the publication, but we don't have the same number of death. Uh, we have uh, thirty-eight death into the, um, the database and not the one they announced. So it was uh, 31, I think, in, uh, in the publication. So what we found also into the, the, the database, it's that uh, in the phase one, we had several dosage for uh, the neutralizing antibodies. That was the, the parameter used to uh, be the, the criteria uh, criterion uh, to represent the immunity. So we have several uh, measurements for several subjects. We don't know why. And if we use one measure or the other, you have this kind of curve. So uh, the, the one they use to provide the analysis, the one on the, um, uh, the dash uh, points. And the blue one is if you would use the other measures that were not presented. So we, so I, I wrote into my expertise in January 2022 that they did not measure the antibodies, neutralizing antibodies, not too far because uh, they knew that uh, they were uh, uh, go down and um, they, they will go down. And uh, obviously they, they, they knew it since the phase one. And we know uh, that into the, the study, the preclinical study on the on the monkeys, the antibodies had uh, begun to, uh, to to drop uh, at two months after those two. So, why how do how uh, do um, how to not to measure no, not measure what you don't want to to see and what you don't want to show. Now, Christine, when was this known? So you're saying they knew the antibodies dropped off at two months. When did they know this? Uh, in, um, since the preclinical pre uh, study on the on, on the monkeys, because uh, ah, sorry, I don't have the the. But was the, this this had to be early twenty twenty? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, uh, uh, the the clinical uh, on the preclinical trial, uh, it was on uh, April, I think, April twenty twenty. The start of the clinical trial on the human uh, people is uh, April 2020. The phase three started in July 2020. The first interim analysis was provided in uh, November, December 2020. Uh, so they knew at the beginning, of course. We can see this on the on the preclinical pre results. And um, so what we also know is that we have some risk because if you don't have any data on several populations, you have risk and you take risk to make people get the jab as you don't have any data to prove that this is safe for them. 
So you have this, the risk, it's missing information into the risk that I'm at, uh, the risk management plan. The first one was uh, provided in December 2020, I think. And uh, the first, uh, the, the last, um, latest available onto the, the website is uh, November 2022. And you have the same missing information. So no data on pregnant women, no data on immunocompromised patients, no data in patients with comorbidity, etc. So it's uh, really, um, I don't know how, how, how they can say it's safe and uh, to encourage this uh, population to have the, the jab because we can't say it's safe for these people as you are you don't have any results but but and let so me ask let me ask pierre pierre was there enough in the dossier do you think at this time for them to know it was not safe as we will see uh, going forward, I believe uh, they did knew it was not safe. Uh, first of all, because we had uh, whistleblowers from inside the trial coming forward with serious adverse effects. And we know from their testimony that uh, the sponsors directly intervened uh, to the clinical trial uh, supervisors. So their adverse effects were requalified, for example, in suspected COVID cases. But we will depend on that uh, going forward. Uh, there are absolutely serious anomalies, uh, which will at best uh, invite to an in-depth audit of the data manager and of the trial sites. So you, you, I, I can answer too because on the twenty uh, uh, in October twenty twenty, we had this uh, slide presented uh, during an FDA meeting, and. Uh, uh, on on this page, uh, it was I think um, Tom Shimaku Bureau from the CDC who presented this page. Um, it's a list of adverse event outcomes to be followed into the pharmacovigilance database. So when you read this, uh, pregnancy birth outcome, convulsion, stroke, anaphylaxis, acute myocardial infection. Myocarditis, pericarditis. It's for you, uh, dear doctor. <laughs> well, it, so, I can tell it, you it, that it, everything on this slide has now been reported in the peer-reviewed literature. There's over 3,400 papers on this. But my question is, Pierre, how did they know October 22nd of 2020 with great detail? How did they know seizures, myocarditis, multi-system inflammatory disorder. How did they know? Simply by observance of uh, alert signals they had collected during the trial without being able to establish causality or without wanting to establish causality uh, and uh, without having enough statistical significance to determine if it was related to the, to the product. So in October 2020, on the basis on of uh, obviously uh, uh, vaccines, uh, cu current uh, adverse uh, reactions of vaccines, and maybe of the of the spike itself. So, uh, if you look, we look at this, we had uh, several neuro neurologic problems that we we have today. Uh, we have many people with neurologic troubles, and they 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 had planned to to 
to look for this kind of event into the pharmacovigilance databases. So uh, what is very important, it's this, an illusion of double blind. So I'd, I'd let Pierre explain. So basically, the protocol itself was riddled with bias. And uh, while the study was presented to the public as a double-blinded following the standards of uh, clinical trials, uh, from the protocol itself, we knew that uh, there would be violations to, to that uh, standard of uh, practice, uh, mainly uh, the fact that, for example, the protocol deviation team, uh, the team in charge of reviewing, if someone who had uh, not followed the protocol, for example, with a woman uh, becoming pregnant or uh, someone not receiving uh, his dose in the plan shield should be excluded from the analysis, was not blinded. And I believe, doctor, that from your own clinical experience, that's a pretty rare event. So, Pierre, I wanted to ask you something about the blinding. Um, in the studies, uh, virtually everybody who got the real shot, their arm got sore. And those who got uh, placebo, their arms didn't get sore. So people knew if they were vaccinated or not. It, it, and, and they, you know, at that time really believed the vaccine was going to work. So is it possible that those who took the shot, if they developed some mild symptoms, they wouldn't come forward and report it, but those who, who didn't get the shot, they were more likely to come forward for an evaluation. Isn't that true yeah. in the data? There were a lot more placebo patients who came forward for suspected COVID-19. You anticipate on the slides, but indeed from the data, it's obvious that people were aware of the product they had received. Uh, and we observe that, for example, from the proportion of deviations uh, of people who were in another trial, who went in another trial to receive another uh, COVID product. Yeah. Uh, and the placebo are far overrepresented in that uh, anomaly, as uh, Christine shows us, uh, receipt of another coronavirus vaccine is at 78 versus 22 among the 546 people concerned. What? So there is significant difference. One point uh, we know from the testimony of Brooke Jackson as well that the trial where she worked were absolutely not respecting the blinding constraints, which are in theory uh, very heavy, and that everyone knew who was uh, blinded or not, who was a placebo or a BNT at trial scale in those Frivantavia sites at least. But so, what, what, sorry, Pierre, what's important? It's that when Brooke Jackson said in uh, November 2020 or October 2020 uh, to the FDA, uh, there is a problem, there is a big problem. We, we have violation of the good clinical practices in the Vantavia centers. We can find uh, the proof into the database that uh, the, the, the placebo group and the vaccine group were not managed the same way. I'm stunned by this. Nasal swab collected at visit where it wasn't required, 67% in placebo, 33% active treatment. So either the patient prompted that or the research staff prompted that. So that answers my question. But I'm really blown away with received another coronavirus vaccine, 78%. Is this, is this after December 10th, after they were released uh, clinically? 
No, no, it was before. This is before cutoff, uh, meaning uh, before the November 14 cutoff and before unblinding. Oh, is this could is this data from Asia where they already had the the Chinese vaccine? You no, know, it's the PHMPT data, but uh, as you know, the, there was several analysis, one on November 14, which allowed the EUA, and one on March 13, 2021, which allowed the BLA. And these uh, deviations, uh, which Josh investigated, are uh, all pre prior to unblinding of the subject. So before to be unblinded, the subject it's a Okay, so so maybe that was a placebo patient who became unblinded for whatever reason, either because they had COVID or an adverse event. They took another shot anyway. Keep so no, it's, a, it's a major bias. Uh, one more, uh, when we have all the placebo group who has to get the jab during the clinical trial, you suppress the control group, so you don't, you can't conclude anymore on a comparison be between the vaccine and the and the placebo group because you don't have any more placebo group so it's very convenient well it certainly it, it certainly blends the lines on safety um uh, for sure it does undermine any hope of finding efficacy if it's there but let's keep going here oh here's the local testing rates this is interesting Indeed, it is because we reanalyzed uh, the, the testing rates locally and centrally with Josh Getzko. And what it shows is that there is a very significant difference in treatment of the subjects at the local scale, with 45% of the placebo group being tested against 39% of the BNT group being tested on symptomatic visits. And there are two points to note. Uh, first of all, there is a large variation from site to site, and this anomaly is uh, located, if you can go back, Christine, exclusively in the USA, with Argentina at 90% plus following in appearance the protocol. Uh, and the testing of the, the subject increases after obtention of the EUA, again, without satisfying explanation. And this is a very significant uh, statistical imbalance at p value of 0 0.000055. So th this means for people that this uh, difference uh, cannot be due to uh, the chance. And that people at uh, the, the clinical investigation in charge of reviewing the subject in those sites knew perfectly who, we were, who they were uh, talking to when patients were uh, reporting symptoms. What's important to understand is that those uh, symptoms reported were what triggered the PCR test, which then established uh, a COVID case symptomatic for the efficacy analysis. So we illustrated a bit of, of those abnormal sites with uh, the USA major anomalies, and each of the sites obviously treats uh, is uh, BNT subject very differently from its placebo with can, what can only be seen as a desire to find more placebo cases than BNT ones. So oh. please note that yeah. we have the Cincinnati Children's Hospital that uh, recruited Maddie de Garay, uh, who suffered from uh, 30 symptoms after the receiving the vaccine during the clinical trial. Yeah, that was a tragic case, multi-system inflammatory disorder. I have some cases in my clinic, but this is astonishing 
at some of these sites, they were obviously testing the placebo patients way more than uh, those who received the vaccine. Now, Christine and Pierre, we're at a just past the halfway mark, just so you can um, gauge your time. Kind of bring us through the next sets of findings. So next findings, we to briefly mention it, we have the same anomaly at central testing rates. And if yeah. we can... We... Uh, may, maybe we, we can um, just uh, um, be more uh, quick, no? Yeah, yeah, but we, in any case, because if we are, if we are at halfway mark, we are in time. We, we are in time, no worries. Let's pass quickly over Augusto, if you don't mind, slide 25. So Augusto is a very important case for us because it was one of the participants of the trial. And if you get to, can go to the next slide, Christine. What happened to him is that he was recruited Sorry. on 25. And uh, after his second dose on the September 9, uh, began very unwell uh, at the a collapse at home and finally reached the hospital where he was diagnosed with pericarditis. And the clinical trial main investigator in Argentina, uh, Fernando Polak, who is also the lead author of the NGM study of the EUA, uh, intervened to try to have him qualified as a psychiatric uh, case instead of listening to, to the alert signal, uh, which was raised by uh, Augusto. And it's particularly important to understand Augusto's story, to understand the next problem we are bringing forward, which is that we have in the database uh, subjects which are missing, which we can tell, first of all, because the study identifiers were incrementally attributed by site. And when you look at the continuity of those uh, subjects, you notice that there are 301 of those who are missing. The first alarming element regarding this is that it's very disbalanced um, in uh, among the clinical sites, meaning that we mentioned earlier that Argentina was exemplary as far as testing the subject was concerned, but they wait for 36.9% of those uh, disappeared subjects. And on the day where Augusto received, uh, the, was recruited in the study, we notice uh, that there are 17 subjects missing on the same day that he, re he received, uh, he, he was recruited in the study. And what people must understand was that the schedule to receive the vaccine inside of the study was very regular. Uh, it was 19 to 23 days per protocol. In fact, 19 to 40 days, two days were allowed. But the Argentinian uh, sites were particularly militar uh, in terms of uh, efficiency to deliver the doses. So there are very strong concerns that uh, those subjects were simply deleted from the database after receiving the same dose when Augusto. And this, in terms of clinical trial, uh, lack of data integrity is a scandal. Plain and simple. Yeah. So, Having uh, in mind uh, that the software uh, managed by, uh, which was managing the, the trial, uh, Firecrest from ICON, uh, allows the principal investigator, uh, if granted the permission, to delete himself subjects or symptoms or uh, visits or tests. So pretty much customize any data we want. And there are strong concerns that has been the case here. But so Pierre, again, forensically, do you think it was intentional to remove those people from the data? 
yeah, personally, I have absolutely no doubt that it was subject to work. Uh, having uh, efficacy or uh, safety issues, and uh, that those were simply removed. That, that's why we need an audit. I asked for an audit since January 2022. We, we must have people to go on the centers to check all the source documents, to check the audit trail of the of the software where you have all the re records. Uh, enter data, the, the reason for change, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, it is uh, to, 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 to check if the patients really exist because we, we don't know now. Maybe we right. some passion. But uh, Christine, are you saying there's been no audit, no independent audit or audit report that we can review? I, we need an independent audit, of course, because... Uh, the FDA said they, they had uh, uh, performed uh, several audits, but they, they said they had not checked the integrity of the, the, the data integrity. So the data integrity is exactly what we want <laughs> to be sure that the results are correct. So it's a bad, bad, uh, bad movie. So um, what is very important, and I'm sure that people don't don't know this, it's that the that Pfizer uh, changed his uh, manufacturing process uh, during the clinical trial. So they included uh, thirty thousand uh, participants, and then they realized that uh, with the process used to manufacture the the doses. Uh, they won't be able to produce for billions of people. So they changed the process. And uh, this is written into the protocol, <laughs> written into the protocol in uh, October 2020. And what is uh, really um, amazing is that they had planned to uh, give uh, the new uh, products, new uh, manufactured with the new process, to uh, to um, 250 participants. And they had planned to compare the results of immunogenicity and uh, safety of these participants with uh, 250 uh, participants, um, um, a sample of, of, two, uh, of, the, of, the, of the first uh, process. Was, so we- Was that ever done? Was that ever I, done, that comparison? We don't know. Yes, it was. Ah, yes, it was. <laughs> but we, we haven't seen the result yet. So, to be clear, we reconstituted them, and there has been recently a rapid response from Retsef Levy and Josh Getzko uh, to the BMG, uh, which precise an important uh, point on that topic, which is that among those 252 subjects, which we were able to backtrack, uh, using the, the dose delivered by sites, uh, we find a 2.7 ratio of adverse effects compared to the original product, which was already quite terrible. So, so what is very important to know is that this new process uh, was not so good because uh, when the pro uh, when um, during the the meeting to examine the documents. Uh, into the European Agency, EMA, uh, they, they had major objections 
because the rate of uh, um, mRNA integrity was lower than with the first process. So not so good. But, so you're and, saying the new method, the RNA integrity dropped. Yeah, exactly. And Significantly, wow. yes. But what wow. people don't know, dear doctor, it's that the 95% uh, of efficacy announced on TV, by politics, etc., is on the first process, not the second one. Oh, I see. Do you understand? Wow. So people... Okay, so there was a lot of biases in place to make that 95% efficacy claim. I know most people, you know, as your group has, when you enter in the biases, all the different things, that 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 real efficacy goes down, 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 down. And then on top of that, they change procedures to a more mass um, production phase where the RNA they, they, integrity is not changed. changed. Before. Oh. They have changed before. Yeah. They have changed. To be clear, <laughs> there are a few important precisions on this process. The first process was PCR-based, meaning that they received the sequence from China, amplified it through PCR, uh, cleaned it for magnetic bead code purification, and this was producing very high RNA integrity. The second process uh, was uh, linearized, linearized plasmid DNA, uh, grew, grew, uh, grown in E. coli bacteria, and uh, was purified via protein cas digestion purification. The RNA, RNA integrity found in analysis uh, is uh, between 50 and 60 percent. And moreover, it produces, uh, by definition and by design, important quantities of endotoxins uh, in the jabs, which can, uh, as uh, it has been highlighted by Geoff Payne, uh, the researcher in Australia that we mentioned, uh, be at the origin of a very vast quantity of adverse effects uh, that we notice short terms of the jab. Uh, regarding the DSDNA impurities, the work of Kevin McKernan has been now uh, confirmed by various independent researchers and that two interlocutors, which can be interesting for the audience to, to review. So, Pierre, are you convinced that there's fragments of DNA in these vials, so-called cDNA or plasmids, and specifically the, the tumor promoter SV40? Are, are you convinced of that? Uh, I am, yes. I have absolutely no reason to doubt the uh, integrity of the research of Kevin McKernan. To be clear, we have uh, we are very far from my domain of expertise, so I'm uh, observing from remote. But uh, it has already been reproduced by various independent researchers, and the uh, weight of the propaganda which falls on Kevin McKernan following this uh, preprint publication tells me that there is something there uh, which uh, people don't want to hear. Wow. This is a bombshell. Well, we've just got a few minutes left, uh, Christine. Why don't you take us home? Yeah. Just, but uh, just the conclusions, because we have almost finished. So to conclude uh, with uh, our all investigations, so the population excluded from the trial with no results. I've always uh, talked about uh, them. Interaction with other vaccines not studied, transmission not studied, interim analysis on the three months follow-up, only on all the populations. So you you analyze at three months on the adults, but you do the same thing on the adolescent. 
and you 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 do the same on the children why why uh, they, they they could have um uh, add three months follow-up for the children maybe or for the babies because they were not at, at risk uh primary endpoint so number of covid cases based no statistically proven efficacy on several covid no statist statistically proven efficacy on the on people um age more than 75 years five years neutralizing antibodies not measured after two months post those two to hide the drop um serious adverse event not reported such as the augusto Roux and madi de garay cases uh inappropriate management of participants inappropriate choice of uh, main criterion inappropriate choice to manage participants with the no PCR test for all, despite the patient protection law, what we call the declaration of Helsinki. So remember, we are in the pandemic time. We are going to die. Uh, we have lockdowns. And then you are Pfizer and into your clinical trial. You don't have PCR tests for all. You let people contaminate um their children their their wife their husband their friends some people at work so it's not ethic ethic in uh, pandemic time that integrity not checked during the audits performed by fda uh change in the manufacturing process so very good um emergency use given uh, only nine months after uh, the beginning of the um, the clinical trials and uh, results at six months, no efficacy proven on COVID mortality and uh, major findings into the database. Since we uh, we can have this database, we always found more evidence that there are many, many problems in, into this clinical trial. Uh, but we are sure that the, uh, we need an audit to look at all the data into all the centers because uh, in a regular point of view this clinical trial is not valid so, christine so it doesn't have... sound doesn't sound like this would pass an audit sounds like if this was audited the conclusion would be that it's an invalid trial it should be thrown out it just uh, there's just change the auditor violations maybe. Yeah. Now they have to change the auditors. It's not possible to conclude that this uh, this clinical trial is uh, is valid. It's not possible. When you have my experience into clinical trial, I have worked in more than five hundred, maybe in twenty three years. It's not possible to conclude that clinical trial is valid. Okay, Christine, we just have a a minute left here. And then we're going to have to close. So quickly on this okay, okay. So just a summary with the colors. So uh, wrong, 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 and wrong. So the, the benefit, uh, the, the, the ratio uh, uh, benefit risk, it's uh, clearly totally uh, wrong. And this product uh, should be stopped uh, as soon as possible. It should be. Well, if you can uh, send me the slides, I think you already have, but I, I do want to picture that last one, the picture. Go ahead and uh, unshare your slides now, Christine. This one. Yeah, if you can uh, take it off slide share. 
I want to thank Christine and Pierre for this very thorough, um, unbiased review of the clinical trial methods. A lot of people have focused on the clinical trial results, but a lot of people have not focused on the methods. And threats to validity include selection bias, you know, differential applications of procedures, investigator bias. Uh, you know, there are dozens and dozens of sources of bias, as well as, you know, we use randomization to try to um, to eliminate selection bias and, of course, control for all known and unknown confounders. But we have a situation here where it looks like this trial wouldn't have passed, um, it wouldn't have passed good clinical trial conduct, and yet it looked like it was just steamrolled through regulatory authorities. Now, let me ask you one final question. Uh, in in the European Medicine Associations, did they rely on the FDA analyses or did the EMA completely do its own separate analysis of, of this dossier? No, it was a separate analysis, of course, but uh, and they, they had uh, major objections on the change on the manufacturing process, but they, they gave the, the authorization. It was a conditional authorization in uh, Europe, and not an emergency use, not re uh, really the same, but uh, they, they gave the authorization on the basis of no efficacy data at all, no efficacy data on the new <laughs> the new manufacturing process. It's a joke. It's a joke. Uh, I love and I, I love often because it's a joke. Seriously. Yeah. So, so you're right. So it was given the new manufacturing product, which is what people received, was actually conditionally approved with no efficacy data and certainly no, no. safety data. No, because they, they are not planned to study efficacy. They are planned to study immunogenicity and safety. That, and that's it. And to compare, but no, no, that, no efficacy. No clinical efficacy. It's a joke. Right. Well, listen, Christine and Pierre, we're going to have to stop and call it right here. Thank you so much for joining us on Courageous Discourse. Thank you very Thanks much. Thank you a lot for giving us uh, this time. Well, thank you for all your hard work and your your scholarship. I, you know, I think there's a special place for you in history and all the the work you've done. And you know, as I've known both of you now over the last couple of years. Again, yeah. thanks for joining us. Yeah.